As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey, it's another uh, surprise bonus box, holiday edition, if you will. I snuck a recorder out of our little studio and interviewed somebody while Kat was busy earning money. <laughs> For us all. It's something I enjoy doing. Oh, here come the dogs. Hey, buddy. You want to get up on the bed? They always seem to know exactly when we're about to podcast. I'll give uh, Banjo 30 seconds before he comes in. I'd say two minutes. Two minutes? All right. Anyway, this is an interesting interview, I think. Um, it's with a guy that I know. Uh, I've known him for a while. Uh, his name's Tom Morelli. He's an incredible photographer, um, as was his dad. We actually have a beautiful uh, print of a... Here comes Banjo. I think I was closer than you were. Yeah, but your guess was over. It's like the price is right. You fail. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, yes. A uh, beautiful copy of a photograph that he took of downtown Bangor at Christmas time in the 50s. And it's just so cool. Yeah. He's, uh, as you mentioned, a photographer. He's a musician, a professional musician. Mm -hmm. He is an author. And he is a near-death experiencer. Is that a term? Well, sure, I guess. Okay. Why not? He has quite an amazing story to tell, and he joined me a few days ago. First of all, thanks for having me here. It is an honor. This is a very interesting podcast. Your subject matter is terrific, so thanks. I appreciate uh, you having me here. And in case someone's listening to this and they don't have time uh, to listen entirely about my near-death experience, I'll just I'll synopsize. I lived. Yeah. Okay. okay so you so can fast forward now to the next episode because <laughs> I, I lived. And yeah, I was when my I was a musician when I was born. My mother, I was holding a guitar. It was kind of tough on mom. But, I bet you know. I bet that was painful. <laughs> it was a Les Paul too. Wow. But anyway, hey. it's great to be here. And, and, you know, I uh, uh, never thought I'd be talking about this because when I was a younger man and, and, and had this experience, which we'll talk about, uh, I thought, you know, people are going to think I'm nuts. So I'm not going to bother to mention this. I didn't tell anybody. You were reluctant to. Uh, it, yeah, but now that, I'm older. I don't care if people think I'm nuts. They know I am anyway. So, well, so <laughs> when, 
how old were you when you decided that you were going to tell your story? Uh, it was literally, I was, it was about, uh, let's see here, what years? It was about 2013, and my mom had just passed away during the summer of that year. And of course, as you get older, you start thinking about your own mortality. So I uh, happened to mention on Facebook, and I have a very active Facebook page for my business and my photography and my music. So I just happened to mention the anniversary of my car accident that mm-hmm. I was in that precipitated all this. And a bunch of people started saying, well, what happened? So I dealt a little more, and I said, I had kind of interesting experience, but you know, that, I won't bore you with that. Oddly enough, a news crew shows up and goes, knocks on my studio door that afternoon and yeah. said, hey, we heard about something and we're just going to follow up. What do you think? So they did an interview of, of what I said, well, I might as well spill my guts here. So I told them what happened to him. Well, suddenly the next day after it aired, people were writing, we want to hear more. Mm. And that's what precipitated. My wife didn't even know. I never even told my wife about this. She'd seen you know, physical manifestation, my scars on my legs from my accident, but she just knew I was in an accident. We didn't talk that much about So this happened when you were how old? I was 19 years old. You had a car accident. It was February 23rd, 1978. And you were driving in a snowstorm to a gig that your band was playing? Yeah, I played in a band called Sunrise back then, and Sunrise was playing at Jed's in Belfast. By, by the way, Sunrise is the quintessential 70s high school band name. It is, yes. I, I played in a band called Cloudburst. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah. So you were, if we'd gotten together, you probably would have rained out our performance. Well, we would have canceled each other That's out. That's right, yes. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, it's sort of middle weather. But yeah, so we were playing, uh, and I lived in Orrington, Maine at the time. And uh, so that particular day was, was we were, had a gig in, in Belfast, Maine at Jed's. And one of my, uh, the drummer in our band was coming to my home there. And then he and I hopped in my car together and, and took off. You were 19. I was 19 years old. Okay. Yeah. And a young dad. I had a one-year-old son. And you know, I will say this, this book is sort of runs a dual path. I, uh, I call it a, uh, not only a, a sort of recollection of what occurred to me, and I always tell people, this is not meant to be a religious or a spiritual book or convert people to thinking about life after death. It's really just putting my experience down on paper so I kind of got it off my chest. I never thought of any, I always said, this could be a million seller. I'll have a million in the seller. And that's, yeah, yeah. that's why I went with Kindle first because I thought, oh, a few electrons, nobody cares. But once it started to sell there. But anyway, I was a young dad, but it's also a love story to my son. Because as, as we talk a little more about the details, my uh, the reason I'm here is the choice I made to come back and, and raise my son. Mm. And if it hadn't have been him, if I was single at the time, and no children, I may or may not have decided to come back. So take us back to that, that day. There was a, a snowstorm that day, right? A very, almost an ice storm, very similar to the ice storm of 98, except this was 78. And uh, the roads were treacherous. It was really bad. And oddly enough, my mom and dad, who were divorced at the time, uh, Colby. I was married, living at my in-laws at the time with my wife and my son and uh, renting an apartment from them. And they uh, said, hey, your, your dad's on the phone. So I went to the phone, all pre-cell phones, of course. And uh, he said, you know, I had a dream last night. My dad was not like this at all. But he said, uh, I don't think you should play tonight. I had a bad dream. Something happened to you in an accident. I don't know. I don't really know. But he, and I'm like, oh, you know, when you're 19, you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. So sure, I said, ah, sure. yeah, dad, thanks. You know, I'm going. <laughs> My mom called a few hours later, and they didn't really talk. They were sort of in the post-animosity divorce sure, sure. afterglow. <laughs> so my mom called. She said, honey, I'm kind of worried about you. I saw the weather, and I don't think you should go. And I said, well, I, I know. I said, Dad, call. But they, they plow the roads. She goes, well, actually, I had a dream. No, no, really? Yeah. And wow. she said, I dreamed that you were in a real bad car accident. And I was like, hmm, Dad did that too. But it didn't 
register again. I was like, well, you know, that's good. Your folks worry about you. So that you ended just, up not being something that just threw your Ampeg in the car and off you. Yeah, left. that's yeah. right. I had my, my 1972 Fender Telecaster ready to go mm-hmm. and, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, amps and I had drums in the back because our drummer was riding with me. So, um, it was a rotten day and, uh, you know, my car was this little Subaru, uh, you know, hatchback, uh, or station wagon. And, uh, not great in the snow and sleep. But, you know, again, you don't think about these things. When you're that age and you're ready to go rock and roll some club, terrific. Let's go for it. So you pull out of the driveway. Now uh, now your drummer's with you. Yeah, our drummer's name was Brent Saban. And Brent, now, uh, he's unfortunately passed away since then. Not from this accident, but many years later, fortunately. But uh, Brent hopped in and uh, I said the same thing. What do you think? And he goes, oh, God, let's go. So we took off down Route 15 toward Bucksport, Maine, across the Verona Island Bridge. And uh, it, my windshield wipers were barely able to keep up. You know how it gets so frozen. It was so cold and mm-hmm. the ice was building up. And, and those were kind of flimsy anyway. You know, I was a college uh, age student, so I wasn't really taking good care of my car. Uh, just as we crossed the Verona Island Bridge uh, and took a left headed toward Bucksport, there's a, there's a bunch of cliffs there on the right-hand side. It's kind of a, a narrowing of the highway. And uh, that's when the road got really bad. And that's, that's where the accident occurred. And that's, that's right next to an area called Belfast Bay. So there's, yes. there's a lot of nasty weather that comes in that right. area during that time of year. Definitely. It was, uh, uh, and it, of course it was early evening. This being in February, it was already getting, it was dark by then. This sure. was around seven o'clock at night and we're supposed to play at nine o'clock. Now the band was already, uh, part of the band was already there setting up and we were just running late cause it was running so slow cause it was slow going. And, uh, so basically, the, not a lot of traffic on the road, but suddenly I saw headlights off in the distance, and it was hard to see. Uh, almost kind of looked like streetlights, and then they started going back and forth across the road. And I was looking at my uh, co-pilot, Brent, going, what is that? And we said a few swear words. <laughs> and then those lights came across the road, and at the last moment realized it was a, a large uh, Chevy Impala car, which was a lot bigger than mine hmm. at that time. And uh, that's that's when I got hit head on. No, uh, I remember from your book, didn't Brent like crawl down in the front underneath the dashboard or something? Yeah. He, he had you a know, chance to react exactly. to it. I had a seatbelt on and he didn't believe in seatbelts. And, and that those two factors saved both of our lives. Interesting. Because we hit so hard that my seatbelt actually tore out of the floor, tore the bolts right out of the floor. And, and the seatbelt did restrain me enough. So that I went through the windshield, but then came back. Ooh. My head went through the windshield. <laughs> Explains a lot about me nowadays. <laughs> and uh, But Brent, on the other hand, I, I could just see out of the corner of my eye by the dashboard light, so to speak. He was starting to scream like as it occurred. He ducked down underneath with no seatbelt on and got down kind of underneath the dashboard. Yeah. And that saved his life hmm. because we had a big metal equipment uh, locker that had lights and some, and that thing flew forward with the impact and cut the top of his seat off and oh. went right out the windshield. And so it would have probably decapitated him. Oh my God. So he, we both made a good choice. Now his face was full of glass. He got glass in his eyes and he had some serious, uh, fortunately all turned out all right, but he had some serious rehab on his eyes uh, because of that. And so our choices both saved our lives, uh, even though we were both pretty injured. Now, what was the deal with the car coming toward you? Did they- uh, the, You know, legally... <laughs> It never, and I won't mention their names. It was an older couple from Connecticut. And the story we got from Jed's, they actually coincidentally had been at Jed's in Belfast. The uh, club and, you were going to yeah, play. and because it's a restaurant as well, very famous restaurant down there for a while. And they'd had a few drinks. Mm. And apparently the gentleman that was driving uh, had had a few drinks. His wife was in the back with their little pet dog. Now, 
I was gone, as we'll talk about uh, at this point, but when the impact occurred, his wife actually flew into the front seat with the dog. And when the state police showed up, he told them that she was driving. Really? He was in the backseat, yeah. And and it went to court, and they only got a small fine for failure to yield for crossing the road. Oh, my God. Uh, So they... uh, Back in those days, you know, the forensics in the late 70s were different than they were now. You know, they didn't take an a alcohol test. Uh, the EMTs that showed up were more worried about me and mm. my passenger because these two were walking around sure. apparently fine because of the size of their vehicle. So so uh, there's no proof of that, but that's what we were told by the, the JEDS employees. Putting, putting the, the pieces yeah. together. The impact occurs. What's the last thing you consciously remember? I remember what looked like a million stars. And I think that was my head going through the windshield mm-hmm. as the, the safety glass kind of shattered and powdered in front of my eyes. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I was out, I was gone. And uh, as I say in the book, Tom Morelli just packed his bags and he was going somewhere else. So that's the last thing I remember other than my experience, which we'll talk about. The next time I remember being in the car was quite a while later when they were cutting the top of the car open and pulling me out. So you regained consciousness. You were still at the accident scene. They hadn't retrieved you from correct or yeah. extracted you. I did see what they were doing, but that was from a, a different vantage point, which to me was above the car. All right, let's get to that. So right. the impact occurs. You see uh, a thousand different stars. What was the next thing that happened? Was it an instantaneous thing that you realized that, hey, I'm not in my body anymore? Or was it like waking up or what was it like? It was like waking up, but I was extremely comfortable, very warm, very happy, felt terrific, no physical pain, no mental pain. And I was perceived that I was on my back floating upwards, mm. looking up toward what we consider the sky or upwards. Right. And, uh, you know, it sounds trite. It sounds like, oh, man, a million movies. But I, I see this warmth. I see this light. And my senses, as I talk about in my book, there were, everything was on high. I smelled memories. I saw hmm. light. I saw warmth. I felt love. And I went, I want to go there. So I kept floating upwards. And I, sometimes I perceived that there were hands under me or something was mm. guiding me up. I was sort of being lifted, not just floating. And it was very comfortable. And I realized what was going on. But at one point, I rotated around and looked down and I could see them, jaws of life, cutting into the car, uh, what, what I perceived to be my body in the car, people gathering around. A hearse was called from a Bucksport uh, funeral home mm-hmm. because the state trooper that first showed up said, I think, you know, this person's gone because I was so coated with blood and it was frozen because I'd been there a while. So they couldn't find a pulse. Oh, my. So the hearse was called instead of an EMT, which is kind of interesting. And uh, so I could see this going on. And then I how, rotated How back. high up did you perceive it to be? It I looked mean, like I was probably 50 feet above. It was pretty close. Okay. It, was, it wasn't like right on top of it, but I could see a pretty good surrounding. I could see the road. I could see the surrounding support vehicles, uh, which at that point, there was a trucker, the person that called this in, because this is all pre-cell phone, a, a truck driver had stopped. He came upon the accident and uh, called it in to the whatever local sheriff, I think it was, on his CB. And as they started to show up, it was state troopers and sheriffs and, and again, no EMTs or you know uh, medical folks yet because they didn't really know what they had. Right. So I could see that, see the trucks. I could see people, the trucker and, and his truck and people milling around and uh, that were authorities. And then the hearse pulling up. And I couldn't perceive at that time what it was. And I asked later, 
what it was. And they were like, how did you see that? Because mm. that left before you woke up. Wow. Because then the EMT showed up and took its place. Now, I've read a lot of um, case histories of this sort of thing. And a consistent theme that runs throughout them is that when a person is experiencing this and looking at their body, there's a sense of detachment. Like yeah. there's not a feeling of, oh my God, look at how awful I look. It's, you know, or, or, or sadness or misery. It's like watching a TV show or something. Extremely accurate. Yes. I felt no sadness. I felt nothing other than warmth. Mm. And I just felt bathed in this, this glow, like it's okay. This is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, this is how it's meant to be. I didn't even think of it as death at all. I wasn't thinking I'm dying. Did I it just, feel like you were remembering something that you had forgotten? I've often heard that's the case. No, I yes, very much so. Um, I, I felt like I was going home. I literally felt like, okay, I visited here for a while, and this was a neat experience and had some fun. But uh, there was no, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to miss this. It was more like I'm going home to where I've really missed. Hmm. So I felt like I was headed to to where I was supposed to go. So yeah, I get what you're saying there very much so. And that's that was the comforting part. There was no sense of, uh, you know, I want to go back, oh no, you know, and that, that kind of came later, but it was not an oh no feeling as we'll talk about here. That was more of a decision I had to make. Okay, so you're floating above this. You're witnessing what's taking place on the road. Then what happens? I turned back to the light and I wanted to go to the light. And the experience that I had was that where you're going, you can go back and and kind of relive any part of your life that you lived that, that you liked. You can see things. So I started going back to, you know, baseball games when I was a kid, all these other things that were going on and hearing and seeing things and smelling things. Were and, you, you experiencing know. it like it was a memory or you were actually there? I was actually there watching it, almost like a movie. Wow. Uh, and and I, relate, I recounted several of those in my, in my book, uh, which is called Two Minutes at the Gate, by the way. And that's because it felt like uh, – it was just a couple minutes, but it was it was much longer than that, uh, that I was out. I was out at least a half an hour from what I was mm. told, half an hour, 45 minutes before they get re regained consciousness. But So all these things, uh, I went back to my childhood. My mom had lilacs by our house, and I was smelling the lilacs and hearing the bees. And it was just, it was sort of telling me, you're coming home to this, and you can, you can go anywhere in the universe. You can do anything you want. You get to experience this love that you had of your family. Uh, you get to be with them. It just was an amazing experience. And so I was shown that. That would kind of fall under the category of what people have described as your life flashing before sure. your eyes, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, did you have a sense of being physically in a space viewing this? Or Yeah. I was actually seeing it. So I was seeing myself. Like, for example, I played Little League Baseball. My dad was a coach. But were you like sitting in a chair in a room watching it on a screen? Or no, was I, just, I was literally there. You were living it. Yeah, I was at the ball field. Wow. I was standing on the grass. I felt the sun on my face. I could hear people around me talking almost in stereo, I guess you'd say. So it was like I was really there. Wow. No one noticed me. So no one turned to me and talked to me, even though I was standing there looking at them. Uh, so, but I saw me doing the different things that, that I remembered. And uh, just, it would be like watching a movie, but it was holographic. You're in the you're, movie. You're in it. It's just yeah. that nobody knows you're there. Hmm. And brief glimpses of, I guess, things that were important in my life. You know, I was 12 years old in this one of them. Uh, I'd never hit a home. I wasn't a great baseball player. My dad was a coach, you know. And then it was the last game, championship game. And I'll never forget the, and I relate this in the book, uh, I hit a home run. It was my first ever. And a crack of lightning came down across the sky. It was right out of, what's the movie? The Natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Natural. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have any lights. It was flashlights. 
plates. But uh, the uh, I remember they wanted to call the game. Some lady said, oh, it's going to thunder and lightning. And I said, not on my watch, lady. I remember <laughs> thinking that as I was 12. Hit this home run. The lightning comes down. I run around. I We win the game. And that sort of faded, and I went to the next experience. And so I think I was, whether it was my brain releasing this, and I will say my brother's a scientist, uh, an atheist, a great guy, love him. Hypoxia, your brain was, you know, letting up these memories as you were losing oxygen to your brain. It meant nothing. And I said, well, that's this book is for people to decide. Yeah, I'm not telling yeah. you to, you know, this was this or this. It's what you uh, experienced. It's what I experienced. Yeah. You know? um, did you have the sense, you, know, you had mentioned that uh, you felt like maybe there were hands under you helping yes. to lift you. You had a sense of there being a being yeah. there. I, I call it God's hands, you know, because mm-hmm. I believe in God and I believe in a creator and the universe. I say it's hard to go outside and look at the stars at night and think nobody knows when this began. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's infinite. <laughs> well, infinite doesn't fall into the human category. There's got to be something that started those dominoes, uh, whenever it was that because before that, if they say there was nothing, well, nothing really is something too. So this is this is you know my belief, and uh, and and. But I definitely feel there's a creator, and I definitely felt like the creator was was lifting me up. Call it, uh, I don't know if it's, it wouldn't be telepathy, but it felt I was hearing, but not in an auditory sense. It was no Tom, it's stuff. But, but I, I knew that it was time to make a decision. And in my book, I did my best to put it into words because it feels like it was far more. Really, words don't do it justice. It was a, a, just a whole being of uh, it's time to make a decision. And I instantly said, I want to keep going. I didn't, uh, there's no decision here. I want to just keep going. Hmm. And that's when, it's hard to talk about this, I started seeing my son growing up. Uh, he was one, uh, about one and a half at the time, and his life as he was growing up. And uh, basically was kind of said, you know, do you want to go back and experience his life growing up? And, oh, by the way, when you go back, it's going to hurt like you know, this yeah. is this is not going to be easy. You've mm-hmm. got a rough road ahead of you of recovery and and, and life in general. Uh, and at that point, that's where I had to make a decision. And I said, as much as I would love to go on, because all I feel is warmth and you're going home and just this amazing experience. Uh, I basically said, I, I want to go back and 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 raise my son and be with my son, and uh, and that's what I did. So. Once that was decided, it was fairly quick. I rotated around, saw them working on me, and it was kind of like, and it went to blackness. Hmm. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up, and I woke up in the car that I was still kind of uh, bushed into as they're working to get me out. And it's kind of funny. My guitar meant the most to me. I still play this guitar to this day, <laughs> the same guitar. Wow. I reached over, and I and I had a my right arm was broken, but I was able to touch the guitar case, and I said literally out loud, how are you doing, buddy? Because I knew the <laughs> – I forgot Brent was even with me, four guys there. And, uh, and the next thing I felt, my teeth. I was real concerned. Did I knock any teeth out? Because I kind of knew at that point. And then I realized I can't move. Mm. Other than that, I'm pinned in this car. I can't move at all. Then the pain started coming in, the, you know, the, the, whatever the endorphins or whatever that wear off when you have a sudden trauma like that. Mm. And uh, then I just started screaming in pain, kept blacking out, kept waking up. And they're like, we're with you. It's okay. It's okay. You know, and uh, that must give you great comfort. I would like to live a long, healthy life as anybody would, but I'm not afraid of death because I think I know I experienced and saw what I'm going to experience, what, what people would experience. You know, nobody wants to go through, you know, being sick and uh, the sure. infirmities and, and the pain that can go with that and, and having to say goodbye to families and so forth. But uh, it is a great comfort. As a matter of fact, my wife and many people that, that know me will say, you know, when 
stuff is going wrong all around you. You don't seem to really, and I'm like, it doesn't really matter. Mm. This is all temporary. It really is. Yes, you have to be a responsible adult and citizen and parent and everything else and, and, and do good in your life. But uh, it changed my whole philosophy of life. It really did because uh, things that I used to think were really a big deal really aren't. <laughs> they get washed away and eventually mm. you'll be somewhere else. So uh, and I wrote a second book called Lessons because people said, you know, would you apply to this? to your business and your life. And it's that, uh, you know, people die and they have big monuments. You know, they put up big tombstones. And I feel like the monuments that you leave really are your family, uh, your friends, the acts, the deeds you did. Did you help? Are you leaving the world in a better place than when you left it? Those are your monuments. I don't care if I have a, a headstone with a big, you know, gold star on it that says, good job, you know. I, I want. And so, so this experience really gave me that feeling of, uh, I don't angst over death. It's sad, and you know I want to stick around as long as I can to see my kids grow, but uh, uh, you know I'm not afraid of it in, in itself. Now it's been a it's been a couple of years since I read the book, so forgive me. But what's the part? There was some sort of a a situation involving your daughter that was yet to yeah. be born. What was that story? Yeah, I had several visions when I got in the hospital, particularly. Um, that I was visited uh, because I had a diff- I had several surgeries in the hospital and there were some pretty rough things. I, I had uh, my, I was supposed to lose my right leg. As a matter of fact, my knee was in eight places on the ground. They grabbed it up in a baggie. My my tibia and fibula were broken to the point that they were sticking out through my leg. Mm. And I remember being in the hospital, hearing them whispering. Uh, you know, he's going to lose his leg, maybe his arm too. You know, call his wife, call his you know, and so forth. So they. It was pretty rough shape. And I was on Demerol, which could explain some of this, but I don't think so because uh, often I was not. I felt as if I was visited by God or Jesus or a spirit or whatever you want to call it and, and was comforting me and was in, literally in the corner of my room saying, it's going to be okay. Have faith. You'll be fine. And I remember thinking, you know, I would have rather gone on than experience the pain. You know, yeah, it was basically right. I was told. We told you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, but I also saw a little blonde girl playing in some water, and uh, was told, "This is in your future. This is your daughter." And I was like, "No, I had a child when I was eighteen, you know, and uh, mm. I'm, I can't see another. I'm probably not going to have another baby." And I, I did. I eventually, uh, I have a daughter named Charlotte. Thirty years later, so my kids are thirty years apart. Wow. Which, uh, yeah, you know, gives you plenty of time in between for you know catching up. But uh, and she's she's fourteen now. Her name's Charlotte, and my son is forty three, and uh, his name is Scott Morelli. And so Charlotte, uh, and interestingly, she read this book last year. She'd never really heard much about this, and she came up with tears because at the end, yeah, there's a yeah. little uh, nod to her uh, because uh, it ties in with her. Uh, childhood as well. But uh, yeah, so I, I said, a little blonde girl, it can't be. There's no way Jose, you know, and here she is. Yeah. So what would you, based on your experience, what words would you pass along to somebody who might be either fighting a tough illness right now or faced with a very real possibility that death is close at hand? Sure. Kind of the lessons I've learned is, first of all, we're all going to die. Some of us are given longer time than others. Um, I belong to a group called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which is volunteer photographers for, we go to hospitals at no charge and very anonymously and photograph children who either are still born or about to be at the parent's request, of course, because they're parts of the family. They're on earth for a short time. Mm-hmm. Even if it's in utero, they are, they are alive for a short time. They are a person. And so I try to tell people, 
you know, maximize the time that you have because we don't know. I mean, it, it could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years from now when it's our, tar- our time. So, uh, you know, it sounds trite, but live each day to its fullest. Don't leave things unsaid to friends and relatives. Tell people you love them. If you got something that's hard in the heart, you know, try to solve it so that you don't take it with you. And, uh, and realize if you are facing something where your own mortality is here, and we all have friends that have faced that. I have several friends that have passed that, uh, that face this kind of thing, is whatever time you think you have left, really maximize that. But also, uh, in my case, I pray about it a lot. And if you want to think the prayers are just going out to the universe, that's fine too. Maybe what I experienced, you know, we're all part of the universe in a way. Our, our very atoms are made up of stars that exploded. So, sure. you know, if you think of it in that way. Well, Carl Sagan says that. We are made of star stuff. Absolutely, you know. And so maximize it. But because really when you lay your head down at the end of life, it's your family and friends that count. Your job is important, and who you, but those don't define who you are. What defines you is, you know, what are your, what's your relationships? What are your, were you a good son or daughter? Were you a good parent? Were you a good spouse or, or friend uh, or brother or sister? And, you know, building those relationships, in my opinion, is, is really what keeps you alive on this earth as well forever. You remember my dad has passed away. And one of the things he always said was, don't let him forget me. And I said, dad, nobody can forget you, <laughs> at least in the next several <laughs> generations. So in the, in, if you're facing something terrible, A, miracles can occur. So don't give up hope. You know, keep praying or keep asking for positive input and don't give up. And uh, but uh, also realize that, in my opinion, this is not it. So if you're listening to this right now going, you know, it's kind of hopeless. I know for a fact, at least in my case, and I think in your case, that you'll go on and that uh, uh, you'll be fine. I read a, a story one time about a case very similar to yours. And the person was asked, what did it feel like? Because he had, you know, visions of loved ones that had gone on before him and that sort of thing. He said, you know what it feels like when you've been away on a long trip and you come back home, maybe you're going to your camp or or a cottage somewhere and you show up and the lights are on and there are loved ones there waiting for you. That feeling that you have. Yep. That's what it felt like to me. It, it is. It really is. And you know, the only person at that time, I was so young, my grandparents and parents were all still alive. But I had a great grandfather who meant a lot to me. He played piano and uh, violin. And he grew up in Grand Lake Stream, Maine with my great grandmother. And they uh, played at dances and stuff. And, and his violin, when I was a kid, when we go visit him, he was quite elderly at the time. He'd let me play it. Mm-hmm. Now, I couldn't play violin. I was you know, five, six, seven years old. But that turned me on to stringed instruments, which turned me on to the guitar, just the music. And he'd play. He was an old fiddler. You know, right. they play all these little tunes they play at some of the Grange Halls. And I just thought it was so cool that he and my grandmother played dances in what would be the early 1900s. Well, he I've, he visited me during this experience. There's so many things that happened. It's too much to mention here. But it, he played violin for me. And I sat at his feet and as a young man within my perception of this and watched him play. And he wow. played and smiled and and. and said good job you know oh, wow. yeah so uh, matter of fact there's a picture of him with me in that in the book uh, his name was Eben Ellsmore E-B-E-N and uh, uh, so that the visitations and the things like that and I felt very comfortable with him and I thought if I had gone on and he was the only one there to greet me that was great you know the others were going to be coming along eventually you know and, right, uh, but, right. uh, but he was there Who, what else did you did you have any other encounters that was it for specific people for people yeah other than that and seeing my son and 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 at the feelings that I had as far as seeing past events, but all those people were still, still here on earth. So I, I didn't run into anybody else except uh, Eben Ellsmore. Hmm. Wow. 
It's quite a story, Tom. My my takeaway from it again is uh, don't freak out too much over things <laughs> because it is it's all temporary. You know, we're only here for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, maybe 100 if we're lucky. That's a literally a blink in time. I mean, that's nothing. So a lot of times uh, people, if you're running around going, you know, someday I'm going to do this and someday – don't wait for someday because someday's here. Today yeah. could have been someday. You never know what tomorrow would bring. So, so you know, say what needs saying, do what needs doing. You know, and and let people know how you feel about them, and 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 get her done. Is uh, yeah. a great man <laughs> yeah, once said. Yeah, that's right. Not to steal his. Uh, While he was view. spitting tobacco <laughs> juice. <laughs> that's right. But uh, and and really is about your friends and family love. I just want to push that that if you're if you're struggling, you know, and you have relationships that are broken, if you can fix them at all with mm. with moms, dads, uh, brothers, sisters. Uh, you know, you'll you'll be better off. The book is called Two Minutes at the Gate, right? And you have uh, another book as well. Yeah, actually, I have a, a follow up book called Lessons. Two Minutes at the Gate came out about five years ago on Kindle, and then uh, I people started asking for paperback version, so I wrote a paperback, a created paperback. Lessons is a follow up. I just finished my third book, and it's coming out around Christmas time. It's called Eleven. I had a cat that lived to 24 years old. He was my soulmate. Mm. And uh, it's quite an interesting story of 11 lessons I learned from my cat because he had 11 lives. He uses nine <laughs> lives. And then a fourth book I'm working on, which is a total fictional, but it's based on some of the stuff called Willow, which is a character that might have been in there and might have not. So I'll leave that at that. So so uh, 11's coming out soon. Willow will come out sometime in late 2019. And uh, Two Minutes at the Gate and Lessons are both available, both on Amazon as Kindle downloads or paperbacks, or they can contact me at Thomas Morelli Photography and Brewer, and we'll be glad to mail you one or sign it if you'd like. Thomas Morelli, thanks for your time. Very interesting story, and uh, one that uh, it gives you hope. It's comforting to know that uh, there are people that uh, have experienced these things and are able to come back and share them with us. Well, thank you. Um, it's humbling to be here, and the last thing I'll say is, because I speak to a lot of groups as well, I'm not here on this podcast today, and you didn't ask me, and you don't know this today, <laughs> to sell books or even tell my story. There's somebody out there that needs to hear this. Every group I talk to, someone will stand in tears and say, I can't believe you're here. Here's what happened to me. I never wanted to tell anybody about this. But so if you're out there and this has happened to you, you don't dare to tell somebody, tell somebody. Yeah. Uh, because and or if you're going through something right now, uh, you needed to hear this today. So somebody in your listeners will go. That, I needed to hear this, so I'm, I appreciate you being the conduit for this because it is important, and I appreciate it very much. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Well, that's quite an eventful evening. Um, <laughs> oh, wow, quite a story. Absolutely, and the the idea that he was in such a an incredible accident that uh, the the police hadn't bothered calling medical professionals no. they just called a hearse they called a hearse that's terrifying yeah and uh and i wish that i could see pictures <laughs> like is that totally weird it I'm is just... kind of weird yeah <laughs> what? kind of weird okay yeah. <clears throat> sorry yeah but um i know tom and i know the kind of person he is and he really lives his life this way that you know, he tries to not worry, don't sweat the small stuff mm. like like he's talking about it because everything is temporal and that uh, the real lasting monument in your life is not a tombstone. It's the good you've done, the people you've touched, right. your family. And I thought, you know, that's a good message this time of year. Absolutely. I 100% agree. So there you go. An extra bonus box. Yay. Thank you for taking the time to 
lounge about with your friends while I'm at work and talk about yeah. things. Right. Yeah. I'm just lounging around eating bonbons. <laughs> and drinking ginger ale. And drinking ginger ale and reading Red Book. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Tom's a good guy. Check out his book. It's on Amazon, and uh, we'll post it on our Goodreads page. Doesn't he have two books now? He has, uh, yeah, he has two and... uh... Oh, three books, because of the cat book. He just released a book about the lessons that he learned from his cat. That's right, yeah. in. It's called Eleven, is is what he said the name of that book is. So so there you go. We'll, We'll put the links on our Goodreads page. And we will see you Monday. How about that? Just uh, hours from now. Another episode. Ooh, happy holidays. Or something. We'll see you next time, whatever the hell that is. Is it it hard for you to temper your grandiose displays? What do you mean? In just hours, you get more of this magic. You're welcome. (laughs) Is that how it sounded? Oh, God, just... (laughs) Just kick me in the throat right now. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you then. First, though, some some Christmas time innuendo. Okay. In very soon, we'll get well. Another episode will be s- straight up your chimney. <laughs> er. Stuff it right in your sock. Um. We'll drop another Yule log right there on your lap. <clears throat> That didn't work out at all the way they thought it would. So until then... Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The Big Picture Questions and the Most Interesting Research in Science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, Women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.